Hi, I'm Bailey. I'm Caddy. And I'm Teffer. Welcome to Yeah, a show where we talk about young adult lit and what it can teach us at any age. This is our book club, and you're invited. Yeah! yeah. Welcome to week four of Anne of Green April. I'm never going to get tired of that pun. Um, So this week we read Anne of Windy Poplars, which is the fourth Anne book. Um, So in Anne of Windy Poplars, we see... So you will remember the, the end of Anne of the Island. Anne and Gilbert got engaged, but Gilbert had to go to med school. So Anne goes off on... To Summerside PEI to be the principal of Summerside High School for three years. And so this book chronicles those years in a combination of the sort of... This one's interesting because it uses a combination of the sort of regular narrative style that we've seen from the other Anne books as well as letters from Anne to Gilbert. And so we get it broken up into three years and it's kind of... um, It's just sort of... uh, pastoral is the wrong word, but it is a, a portrait of, of life in this town and Anne's trials and tribulations. The first, the first part is, is all about her conflict with the Pringle family, which is the dynasty of Summerside. And then we also meet little Elizabeth, who is a young neighbor, and Anne gets up to sort of her regular adventures and misadventures and does a lot of matchmaking. And this this is an interesting book because a lot of people a lot of people think that this one is just kind of like the worst one and a lot of people don't like it. It's one of my favorite Anne books, and I'm not offended if you don't like it. But um but I'm interested in talking about it. So uh yeah, what did what did you two think of this book? I um would say that uh, I have a lukewarm feeling towards this book. Um, I think of the four, this would be uh, number uh, three in uh, order of preference. Uh, And of Green Gables being number four, unfortunately. Um, I really like, though, uh, Bailey, when you talk about how, uh, you know, there's a pastoral aspect to it. It really did feel like that um i the characters were all right i'm i'm definitely more and more attached to Anne, though um which is interesting and also i wasn't here last week to say haha Anne and gilbert made it happen i'm very excited um but yeah other uh, other than that like it's 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 cute you know it's country cute and Anne has found the future Anne. Uh, in her little buddy. So, uh, sorry, Elizabeth Grayson. So, yeah, I think that, uh, I think it was, it was an all right book. I enjoyed reading this book. I did not enjoy reading this book in a week. I felt like I I had to take it, and I'm usually, like, I am a fast reader. I felt like I wanted to take it in very small doses. And part of that is because I find that reading a 30-page letter that just talks about every person who lives in this town 
was just like a little bit exhausting. And um, I felt like if I had been Gilbert, I uh, um, <laughs> I just, I would have, I, I mean, I guess it, Gilbert got engaged to Anne, so Gilbert loves Anne as she is, shall we say. Um, there's something about going from Anne of the Island, which is a very plot-driven, very relationship-driven, lots of emotional twists and turns, to a book that is essentially just 300 pages of love letters with all the sexy bits redacted. That's a little bit jarring. But it's pretty. And like today when I was finishing it up, I like went out and I potted out my tomato seedlings and like sat in the sun on the balcony and then had a cup of coffee and finished the book. And like that was really pleasant. And I I definitely, I mean, L.M. Montgomery does a great job of making me feel just absolutely devastated that I don't live in the Maritimes in a pretty old house. (laughs) I mean, you do. You do make a compelling case. Um, And that is definitely, I do remember reading this book other times and like finding the whole letter thing like more frustrating I for some reason didn't find it that frustrating on this read through it is definitely like Ella Montgomery just leaving all the good bits out of the letters (laughs) but yeah it's interesting I definitely like all of your criticisms are valid not much happens in this book I think I think we go back to like one of the things that I love about Ella Montgomery is like her characterizations and her just sort of like observations about like the idiosyncrasies of people. Um, and I think like this is a very character book. Like this is just a book that is about all of the different very particular people that Anne meets during these three years. Um, and I think there are some really good characters. Also, also, and maybe this is where we go next. Um, so Aunt Chatty and Aunt, Aunt Kate are like absolutely a couple. Yes? Yes. 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 Yes, they are a couple. They they sleep in the same room. Yeah, they sleep in the same room. They have to like, they, they, they like, you know, like d- d- ask each other their opinions about things. They, they're 100% a couple. Um, and it's wonderful and I love it. Um, I love Aunt Chatty and Aunt Kate. I love Rebecca Dew. I love the, like, ridiculous dynamic that they have. Also, okay, on the subject of the queers, is Anne a little bit in love with Catherine Brooke, yes or no? Heck yes. I mean, I think that, like, we've been pretty open and honest about, you know, like, Anne has a seriously queer vibe to her because she stands out because she doesn't she doesn't fit the mold. So, um, yes. Also, two figures of authority getting it together. So into it. Um, I just want to brush on um, Aunt Chatty and Aunt Kate. Um, Through reading, I actually uh, compared them to Bert and Ernie a little bit. Like I found that it was exactly that same dynamic. I was like, why are people trying to say that these two are not a couple? Do you know what I mean? Like, I was like, this is, this is a relationship happening. Um, but yes, Anne and Catherine, 100%. There were some, like, there was some, some eye makeouts happening. Uh, there was definitely some, there was probably some like really good letter writing and folding without the redacted sexy bits. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's tension between these two characters. I want to take your Aunt Chatty and Aunt Kate and uh, amp it up a level and say Aunt Chatty, Aunt Kate, and Rebecca Dew are a thruple. Interesting. 
I just feel that the dynamic between the three of them develops. So at first it seems as though Rebecca Jew is just sort of their housemaid. And the thing that really clinched it for me, so we have Aunt Chatty who washes her face in buttermilk. This town is obsessed with buttermilk. I did really like the little aside where Anna's like, seems like everybody likes putting buttermilk on their face here. Also love it because lactic acid is actually great for your skin and buttermilk has a lot of lactic acid in it. But there's this this bit where I think it's Aunt Chatty washes her face in buttermilk but hides it from Aunt Kate because she thinks Kate will make fun of her for having vanity at her age. And uh, for me, it kind of all came together when Anne finds out that Rebecca Dew also washes her face in buttermilk and also keeps that from Chatty and Kate because she's a little embarrassed. And to me, there's something about, you know, there's always like a certain amount of preening that you do that you don't tell your partner about. Not like that you wouldn't tell them when they ask you, but like, it's like, I just want them to believe I'm always like this. I'm not going to reveal my own secrets over on air in a podcast my partner edits, but you know, we've all got those, right? And so that made me feel like, I feel like they all care equally about each other. And they're like so committed to each other. And I just, they seem like a non-traditional family unit. Yeah. Absolutely. And just like the way that they know each other so well, like I love the like, there's something that seems very like couple about the, the whole way that they like reverse psychologize Rebecca all the time. <laughs> um, and I don't know, maybe not couple. I don't, it's not necessarily the most healthy of relationship dynamics, but I do love it. <laughs> I would add that the three of them um, also own though he belongs to Rebecca um Dusty Miller um the cat uh and what says uh queer ladies in a thruple more than a cat with a first and last name yeah Dusty Miller is the unsung hero of this book for sure um love him love love Rebecca do exclusively referring to him as that cat but also secretly just like adoring him there's the I had to like read this part multiple times because I love it so much um <laughs> there's a point <laughs> where Rebecca do talks about having seen to his morals and I just like love the fact of the idea of a cat like having a moral upbringing um and you know a good moral like who doesn't give their cat a good moral education certainly Rebecca do does Listen, Rebecca Dew would be so cool played by, like, a Judy Dench or, a, like, a, uh, who am I thinking of? The one who played in oh, the drug movie with Jared Leto, um, uh, Brenda Blethyn, I'm thinking, perhaps, maybe, maybe not. Anyways, um, but one of those, like, very good Shakespearean actors who looks really good with, like, a doily and an elastic as a hat, you know? Um, yeah, I think there's... Rebecca okay Rebecca do is adorable let's just let's just let's just say that she's adorable she's the picture of kindness she's everything that everything that you want in a housekeeper and she is part of the family and she takes care of everyone including Anne and I mean of course that cat would have morals right I mean haven't we all had moments with pets where we question their sense of morality I will also say Rebecca Dew, for me anyway, has high butch energy. Yeah. No, I'm on board with this. Mm -hmm. That explains why I like her so much. I was going to say. Yeah, definitely big butch energy for for Rebecca Dew. So 
So I think we've, we've talked about we've talked about queerness a lot. So I have a theory about this book, and I texted Teffer about it while I was reading it. And th- and this is maybe partially why I like this book. Um, so I'm going to go on a brief tangent, but I promise it's going to be relevant. Um, so are you all and dear readers familiar with the um, like big five personality test? Well, if you are not. It's basically, it's like the only scientifically backed personality test, and it's basically the idea that there are five main traits that everybody, like, varies on in a scale. Um, And the one that is relevant is agreeableness, which is basically, like, how much you care about, like, pleasing other people and having people like you um, and, like, getting along with people. And so the opposite end is quarrelsomeness. Anyways, I am extremely agreeable. And... So is Anne, in my opinion. Um, And this book is just, like, agreeableness fantasy. Because, like, the thesis of this book is I can make anybody like me if I am likable and clever enough. And so that's, that's my theory about this book, is that this book is just peak agreeableness fantasy. We are in a people-pleasing paradigm. <laughs> um, I love uh, that you said that, actually. I, and perhaps why it didn't ring true with me is that although I've never heard of this test, when you said agreeableness, my f- I made a stank face um, and started shaking my head vigorously. Not that I'm like on the other end on quarrelsomeness because I am a nice person. Um, but yeah, this is 100% like Pleasantville came to mind uh, while I was reading this. Not for the soft tones of like, uh, we're going to talk about civil rights in a way that uh, everyone will find palatable, but more so in the way that, you know, everything just needs to be so dagnabbit pleasant. Um, And that is the way that Anne wins at everything. And being someone who struggles with being pleasant, um, perhaps that is where some of my Anne rage comes from. Sorry, I just had a little breakthrough. I get secondhand exhaustion because, like, I have a history of being a super, super people pleaser, and I am a recovering people pleaser who's learning about how to set boundaries and stuff. And um, I'm I'm somewhere between these two. You know, I've got Libra in my chart, but I've got a Mars, uh, or no, a Venus in Aries that makes me a little bit more obstinate and a little bit more stand my groundy. And um, I find the idea of negotiating small town Canadian uh, personal quarrels just absolutely exhausting. And I would rather move to a large house on a hill and never talk to anybody again. Um, so that's who I am in the Ella Montgomery universe, you know. Uh, but I did, one thing I really did enjoy in this is the number of times we see Anne intervene in abusive family situations. Because that's the one thing that comes up over and over and over again. And um, that brought me back to Anne's history of being an orphan and being raised in uh, really unpleasant situations. That she has this sensitivity to people who are being mistreated in their home life and she finds ways to intervene that don't escalate the situation and um, that is really cool to see. We see that with the family um, where the dad is throwing a tantrum and not speaking at the dinner table and uh, obviously we have it with Elizabeth and we have it with, um, now I'm forgetting everybody's names, but the woman who wants to go to the wedding and her tyrannical mother won't let her. 
and it's really well done. And I really appreciate the uh, presentation of intervention without escalation, because that's so important. Yeah, I really love that you pointed that out, Tefer, because I think that is like, that is one of the big through lines of this book is like, I mean, like, I think that is part of like, even a bigger through line that is one of the things that I that just like, it just gets me it gets me in my heartstrings of this book of Anne, like, just generally sort of like helping improve people's lives by being attentive and kind and genuine. Um, but yeah, the the intervening in in situations where people are being abused and mistreated is is huge. And in such, yeah, a sort of like, smart and non escalating way. Uh, and it's wonderful. And then, I mean, I also, we've touched on it, but, like, I love the whole, I love the whole Catherine story and, and how Anne is kind of, like, nice, but also very just, like, blunt with her, um, and, and eventually is able to sort of get to know her and, and figure out what's going on with her, and, yeah, I just really like it. Perhaps we should start calling her and the Green Gables Crusader um, because it, there's a part of it where it's like, is Anna, is Anna martyr? Do you know what I mean? Like, I know that she's doing it in a good natured way, um, but she's always sacrificing herself for people to have access to the truth. And... I don't know, that question kind of just popped into my head. I know I thought about it a couple of times, like through the book where I was like, oh my God, Anne is like the white savior. Um, But I guess in a maritime context, I don't know what I would say. That's why I'm calling her the Green Gables uh, Crusader. But yeah, I wonder, like, there's almost like this, like Anne is the prophet. Wherever Anne goes, things get fixed um, because she brings things like fun and good values and good morals and uh, I guess a good internal compass uh, more than than anything so it is it is it is interesting like I mean it's a really lovely way of of presenting this character and making sure that we stay attached to her but at the same time there is this it puts it on a backdrop of like what are the maritimes really like you know, because Anne is the exception. She is never the rule. I think that's a very interesting way to think about it. And there's kind of two things coming to mind here. Well, three things, actually. One is we come back to this series as a fantasy. And uh, so we we kind of get to see what L.M. Montgomery's, I guess, ideal self is, right? Who she would like to be. And she would like to be somebody who is fixing all the things for all the people. Um. But there's two other things. One is that we do see Anne uh, as a community worker. Her career is in community work. Um, And, you know, there is to an extent for somebody who is a community worker, a school teacher, a principal, whatever, in a small community, they do kind of have a responsibility to know the business of their students' families and to understand the community dynamics. and to do as much good as possible. And Anne also knows she's only there for a short period of time. Um, but I do see it as like a, there is a continuation through the books of then Anne shows up and helps everybody see it through new lenses and things change. Um, but the third thing that comes up is that Anne is still venting. 
And we see that in these letters. Anne isn't just kind of floating around and being perfect and fixing everyone, everything for everyone. She does still have her support base. And she's writing back home and she's being honest with Gilbert about the people and the things she finds trying. Um, which I think is a really important kind of grounding to this story. She has her, her professional and her personal life both uh, to view for us, but not for the people she's with. Yeah, so I really... Um... I really like what you said there because um, I hadn't really thought of it that way before as like the letters are sort of how we see and receiving support. Um, like I think definitely like I have not always understood the function of the letters in these novels, but I really like that. And it sort of provides an interesting counterpoint to an observation that I was having Um but hadn't hadn't mentioned yet, which was um, I sort of sometimes have this sense of this book as being the Anne book that's not really about Anne. Um, like it's not she is not she is of course the main character, but like the story none of the stories are actually about her. Uh, but I like sort of what you're pointing out is that like the the letters is how you sort of see her still being centered and her, like, her place in the stories and her being able to sort of experience them from her own perspective, even though, like, other people are the main characters in the stories, if that makes any sense. It does make sense. And there is something really nice about about the letters being her anchor. I mean, if we're taking into account the, the historical context... Um, you know, I mean, letter writing was their Facebook messenger. Um, and it makes sense that she's away, even though she goes back to see Marilla, she still has, she still needs to, to, to have, keep her two feet anchored in the ground. And that's what it's like her, her lever of intervention almost is knowing that she's well anchored in a community. She's going back home. She's got Gilbert, Gilbert. Oh, that was ugly. That is Gilbert's francophone names. Um, oh, I'm having a hard time. Um, yeah, anyways, very interesting. Gilbert. 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 I like that. Uh, wow, it really, is a, it, it really is a nicer name in French, isn't it? And I was thinking as I read this book how much this book is not about Anne, how much this book is about windy poplars and that community and the people there and I do wonder if Ellen Montgomery just really needed a break from Avonlea really wanted to write some new characters I know I mean she wrote this book in in 1936 or published it in 1936 Anne of Green Gables was written in 1911 so at this point she'd been writing about Anne for a very long time and Avonlea for a very long time and had written the Emily of Noon Moon books, and I wonder if she just needed more of a break from the Rachel Lynns of the world and needed to create some new characters for a little while. That's a really good observation, because now I'm just, I'm trying to just, like, verify this. Um, yeah, so this is, um, okay, it's not the last book published, but um, Ellen Montgomery didn't write these books all in order. Um, which is really interesting. So, like, the first three were written in order, and then the next one that she wrote is the following book, Anne's House of Dreams, which is where her and Gilbert get married. And then immediately after that, she wrote Rainbow Valley, which is a book about Anne's children. Um, 
And then, quite a few years later, she comes back and writes Anne of Windy Poplars. Which is... Yeah, it's really interesting. Like, I, I like this theory that, like, she needed a break from the sort of same settings that she's had because Anne's House of Dreams, etc., are not set in Avonlea, but they're set in another small town with its own set of... Well, we don't have Rachel Lind, but we do have Cornelia Bryant. Yeah, so it's like she, she sort of wanted to play in a little bit of a different world. Okay, humor me a theory. Perhaps because of that, I mean, there is about 30 years uh, between the moment that, uh, well, yeah, almost 30 years between the writing of uh, the publishing of Anne of Green Gables and uh, the publishing of Anne of Windy Poplars. Perhaps Anne of Windy Poplars is more of a look back. Like if we take it like, okay, I'm totally influenced by Call the Midwife. If there's poplars in anything, I'm just like, oh, we're going to poplar. People are going to give birth. It's going to be awesome. Um, But it could be that, especially with the letter writing um, and all that, perhaps it is just an older Anne looking back, right? And, And having all these deep thoughts about people that are not about herself. And because Anne's big characteristic is that she's very altruistic right she 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 thinks about everyone else she wants to fix things for other people while also having a good time herself um maybe that could be an interesting way of looking at this book also you can say if i'm completely out of whack no i i think that's really interesting i especially feel so for me um as I have admitted before, I'm not a, a huge Anne of Green Gables like OG fan. I did really love Emily of New Moon, which is Ella Montgomery's kind of more gothic uh, take on childhood in the Maritimes. Um, and this community, Windy Poplars, it even has like a spookier name, right? And 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 sea captains who were cannibals and the family that rules with an iron fist it just feels more gothic and it really does take me back to the more emily of new moon world and i i do i I appreciate that i like kind of seeing ella montgomery's writing career and life kind of showing up yeah that's really interesting no i like your your theory a lot caddy i think it's i like the like thinking of it maybe as an Anne retrospective the other thing and i think this sort of fits in is like this this book is sort of like a, it's like a placeholder in Anne's life almost, this time in this book. And I think that's why it comes, that's why it comes written out of sequence. Because the first three books are like the arc of Anne growing up and figuring out who she wants to be and falling in love with Gilbert. And then the next book is going to start an arc of like Anne is thoroughly a grown-up. She is starting her own household and her own family. And that's its own sort of separate narrative arc of Anne. Whereas this is kind of like a sort of like waiting game, this book almost, because Anne sort of, Anne has grown up and she has gotten engaged and sort of that, those storylines are all wrapped up, but the new storylines haven't started yet. So Anne is sort of like, just just kind of passing time. I love that. She's on the cusp of something, right? She's on the verge of getting married. And that's not the period that I guess is interesting to anyone um, in that time because the goal is to follow a normative kind of trajectory. I like this theory. I think it's got legs. 
And who boy does this book ever feel like a placeholder? <laughs> I will say I, I looked up the date of publication because I was curious uh, because what I love about this book and lots of old books is they talk in so much detail about clothes. The clothes are just so lovely. And I was really, um, uh, I was reading the part where the old lady is like, you can't wear a collarless dress. So this is like, this book is set, I guess, probably right around the like early Downton Abbey era. If we're going to say that Anne's childhood is in like 1910 or a little later. No. Okay. Tell me, school me. When is, when is the set? So I'm looking, I'm looking at the, the sort of Wikipedia timeline, but it also makes sense given so there's one of the later books you can date very specifically because one of the later books takes place during the First World War. Okay, so it's um, way before. Yeah, so so Wikipedia tells me that Anne of Green Gables takes place between 1876 and 1881, um, and Anne of Windy Poplars is 1887 to 1890. All right, that helps the collarless dress thing make a lot more sense. Uh Anyway, I really appreciated it. Bailey, I'm going to ask you for a spoiler here because I'm never going to read the last few books of this series. Um, do, do do we experience the like scandalous fashions of the 20s and young people changing their clothing or is that just not part of it? Unfortunately not. We might, we might get like a tiny glimpse of it in Rilla of Ingleside. But the last Rilla of Ingleside is set during the First World War. So it ends, like, at the end of the First World War. I just really wanted Gilbert getting, like, all scandalized that his daughter's dresses were showing their ankles or some shit. And Anne being like, I'm going to start wearing these too. That's what fan fiction's for. Teffer, could you write some some um, fashion-forward fan fiction for Anne of Green Gables. Like, I think that focusing the story and the fanfic around the elaborate descriptions of clothing, like, that sounds like just a sexy little read to me. I, I would read that. Um, I, I probably could do that, but I don't think I would do that for free. We could, we could add that as a Patreon tier. <laughs> Patrons or listeners, if you're interested, uh, pitch, pitch us a dollar amount for... Uh... For Teffer's fashion forward and fan fiction. I mean, I'm fully worth, I'm fully down to write some Anne and Gilbert erotica. I think that would be very fun. There would be a lot of descriptions of removing one article of clothing for a very long time. That sock just took forever. <laughs> just very, it's just a description of a sock coming off for 15 minutes. Wait, that's not how you have sex? Yes. <laughs> well, this has been fun, folks. I think we're I think we're losing the audience. Thanks for listening to Yeah. If you want to leave feedback, suggest a book for us to read, or just say hi, send us an email at the yapodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at yapodcast yeah and individually I'm at caddy double underscore d. I'm at Tepper Bear. And I'm at the Balesasaurus. If you like the show and want to help us make it even better, consider supporting us on Patreon or maybe paying me to write the fanfic you want. You can get all kinds of great perks, including early access to bonus content, shoutouts, guest appearances, maybe some fanfic, and more. Head to patreon.com slash yapodcast to donate. Shout out to our patrons Catherine Resch, Erica Stutchberry, Kat McGuire, Lizzie Tenhove, and Chantal Thomas.
we have merch. Hit the merch link in the description of this episode to get some from the fine folks over at TeePublic. You can also support us for free by leaving a rating and review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or on or by finding us on Spotify and by sharing this episode with a friend, ideally a friend who had never thought of Anne of Green Gables having erotic potential and who might like to be scandalized by how we took that there. Special thanks to Great Bear for letting us use their song Jenny's Groove as our theme music. You can find their music for sale at greatbearmusic.bandcamp.com. This episode was produced by Tefra Jemian and edited by Tom Zalatni as part of the Upford Network. You can find out about all the great shows on our network at upfordnetwork.com. Dungeons, Dragons, Canada, the Multiverse Theory, Corgis, Queer Representation, Reconciliation, Angels, Demons, Squirrels, Moose, Moose and Squirrels, Sorcerers, Dinosaurs, Forests, Giants, Rogues, Warlocks, Plains, Sewers, Lavender, Natural Toonie, a Canadian Dungeons and Dragons podcast, right here on the Upford Network. Hi, I'm Howard Mitnick, host of Gateway Music. Join me as I talk with people about the artists and albums that changed their lives, and about the artists and albums that changed mine. Available on the Upford Network and wherever you get your podcasts.